You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative, and to help me talk about the assembled Avengers is John Mills. Ooh, child, yeah, I'm here to talk about this movie. Ooh, Ooh child. child. Yes, indeed. <laughs> here to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy. The It's a, it's a dance-off. I, I'm distracting you, you turd blossom. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> turd blossom quickly became one of my favorite insults for a time, thanks to Guardians of the Galaxy, oh, and man. I am delighted to talk about it, uh, because we get our... We get our first real comedy, like full actual comedy. It's not it's an action. Very true. It's not an action yeah. movie with comedy. It's a comedy with action. Like the whole yes. Marvel script is sort of inverted here. Flipped. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to talk all about it. We're so excited uh, to have reached this point. You know, uh, I think. Um, I don't know. I think it's going to be a lot of fun uh, as we talk about Guardians of the Galaxy. Before we do. Guys, thank you so much for joining us here with uh, Assembling Avengers, and we're having a lot of fun doing this, and we hope you're having a lot of fun listening. So uh, if you are, you know, follow us on places like Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd. We're on all of those places, at the 602 Club on Twitter. We're also that on Letterboxd, and of course, we're on Instagram, at the 602 Club TFM. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, the entire network, Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We've got the listeners-only discussion group that you can join called the Babel Conference there on Facebook, as well as you can also uh, check us out online at TrekFM, where you can see all of the shows we're doing. If you like the shows that we're doing, we'd really appreciate it if you go over to Patreon.com slash TrekFM and become a sponsor of the network. There's absolutely no way we can do this without your help, and we could really use it, honestly. Uh, we've got some plans in the hopper for what we'd like to do with the network, and we're going to need your help to do that. So again, it's patreon.com slash trekfm. Well, uh, John, this is one of the movies where not a lot of like behind-the-scenes drama, which is very interesting, um, mm -hmm. but... One of the things that I'm really interested in, you mentioned last time that, you know, Captain America was the point at which you decided, okay, I have to see these movies in the theater. Yep. So is did that trend continue as we got to Guardians of the Galaxy? Oh, yeah. No, I, absolutely. Absolutely. I fell in love with the concept of this movie from the first trailer. I fell in love with it again when I saw the poster was a... Uh, a beautiful call out to Star Wars. I loved I loved the fact that I knew a little bit of the the material it was drawing on. I knew that it had been redone by Brian Michael Bendis, who's a legendary comic book writer and probably the inspiration point for a large portion of these movies. Uh, but I also was familiar with Guardians of the Galaxy in its original incarnation, which was a completely bat s crazy. Uh, comic book from like the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, I think it was Jim Starlin wrote it. 
And trust me, you think Guardians was was nutty here? You should go back and you should read. Have you ever read the original Guardians run? I have not. It is insane. It's one of those things. It's from the, the era of comic books where you're wondering whether the audience or the writers, who was taking more drugs at the time? Because it's absolutely crazy. This has way more focus than that. And it's it's obviously... Uh, you know, more modern era comic books. But yeah, I was um I was on board with Guardians from uh from the first first moment I saw a trailer. What what about you? Were you excited for this going in? I didn't really know anything about the Guardians. You know, I, I would say this is the first time where there wasn't any inclination of who these characters are at all uh, coming into a Marvel film. So, you know, I hadn't feel felt like i'd you know seen them on the shelf or you know they weren't in they're not in the cultural zeitgeist really you know unless you're Mm -hmm. a comic book fan and so i kind of went into this blind and you know i i think to me it looked like it was going to be fun the trailers were interesting you know and it was the next adventure in a marvel movie and you know um I'll I'll say retrospectively, the only disappointment is that this should have been uh, exactly where we should have had a Black Widow movie, um, but that won't happen for quite a while. So, um, but it's disappointing because when you think about what we leave Captain America with, the Winter Soldier, it would be a perfect time to jump into what happens next with Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow. And yet that won't be something that we play with until much later in the series. So, um, you know, and that's not this movie's fault. Uh, This is, uh, you know, obviously we're talking about this, you know, after the fact. And so we could I I feel like it's okay to be able to comment on some of those kind of uh, discussions. But that's the only thing I think these days. I'm like, dang, this would be it's just too bad that wasn't the case. But see, and no, I think you bring up a valid point, but I think what's really, really weird and interesting about it is in this phase two block, we have the aftermath of the Avengers. We have Tony Stark dealing with uh, PTS. We have uh, Thor attempting to have a movie about growth and being more serious and darker. We have Captain America, the Winter Soldier, where our hero from the past finds out that the world that he fought for is a shell of itself and he has to tear up things root and branch. It's all very dark. And then this comes along in a large sense. Stay with me. This is going to sound weird, but it's almost like the trajectory of the Star Trek movies where you have very serious, very serious, very serious, silly with Star Trek four. And so there's that sort of vibe to it because what makes that disorienting is it makes you unsure of where you're going to go tonally next. The next movie is going to be Avengers 2, Age of Ultron. What a weird situation to find yourself in because you go with this really heavy stuff that's leading up to what what could arguably be called the empire strike you're anticipating the empire strikes back of the avengers series because you have star wars you have empire strikes back you oh my gosh and everything's leading to this dark thing and then you have this incredibly light and funny movie with a talking tree set in deep space and it's 
it's weird. It's such a tonal departure for everything. But where would you, since we're looking back at this as a retrospective sort of thing, where would you put this? Where could you put this? Would you put this before Iron Man Mm -hmm. 3? Would it work better there? Would it work better in place of Thor The Dark World? Where would you put it? I think that this movie, again, I would have done Black Widow after this, and then I would have done Avengers Age of Ultron. Then I would have done this, and then I would have ended Phase 2 with Ant-Man the way they do. Uh, Because uh, I think this pairs better with uh, Mm Ant-Man because they're much lighter uh, in tone. Um, But I think it would have been a nicer progression to kind of, again, to follow Black Widow on her journey, Nat on her journey, and continue that. And I think she would have made a great progression all the way through into what we get in uh, Age of Ultron and then, you know, jump into kind of this crazier. And and, and the reason is because and the beautiful thing about Guardians of the Galaxy is it literally could happen at any time, honestly, within the framework of phase two and phase three, really. You only need it to happen basically before you get to Infinity War. Yes. Because this movie really um is is setting up all the stuff that goes along with with you know the Infinity Stones. And so I just think you know, uh, retrospectively, and again, this is just armchair quarterbacking, so of course, you know, it, it isn't the way uh, it happened, but I just think, you know, um, where we end up getting the Black Widow movie is a detriment to that film, and it would have fit better here. We already talked about how great we thought she was there, so that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, let's talk about it. I mean, this is a complete shift in tone, I mean, like you said, I mean, it is definitely a shift in tone from like it. I love the the thought process of Star Trek three and Star Trek four. I mean, it's like night and day. Um, and, and in many ways, I think this movie kind of upends the Marvel formula and creates a new formula. They really are always. I mean, it used to be Iron Man that we were trying to copy. And kind of recreate that magic. In many ways, I think this is the magic that we've been trying to recreate for the most part in many of the films since that time, since this came out. Well, something that really struck me that I didn't really think about too much, but I it definitely really stuck with me this time, is that Peter Quill's our first normal human being that is our lead character. Tony Stark is a super genius. Thor is a god. Captain America has the serum in him. Hulk is Hulk. Uh, Black Widow, yes, okay. You could throw the 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 you could throw that challenge flag and say, well, she doesn't have any superpowers, but we know that she's a super trained secret Soviet mm-hmm. agent, so she has that sort of background to her. That's not just she's just a normal person right. who just happens to be. And I know that Peter Quill gets kidnapped by aliens and then becomes you know a a ravager and everything but he's 
just a lost kid. He's a mixed up kid, basically, which I think is a real departure. And I think that um, that adds a lot of charm to the movie because much like Indiana Jones, you believe from the beginning that this character can fail and can die. There's nothing like that is something that subconsciously works to the detriment of a lot of Marvel movies is the main characters don't feel vulnerable enough to die. Hulk is a lost cause. That's why I don't think they can ever make a Hulk movie again um, with the way that they progressed with him because they basically set up that the Hulk can never, ever, ever be in any sort of appreciable danger. And so, okay, I disconnect there. Thor is sort of the same way. But Peter Quill, the movie goes to great lengths to establish his emotional fragility with what happens to him as a kid and then show that he never really grew up. And so that that first moment, like I, I want to ask you in the movie theater, this movie starts pretty darn seriously, right? It, it, it starts very, mm-hmm. very seriously, very sad, very emotional. And then when you and then when he gets things going on the planet, that's the moment where the switch is mm-hmm. is flipped and you go, wait, oh, wait, what? OK, this is a completely different type of movie than I was expecting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in it, like you said, I, I do think this movie until the very end, it doesn't reveal something special about this character. So you are in a position to think that he could die at any moment because we don't think of him as having any powers other than the tech that he's got and Mm -hmm. it's interesting how many of the characters all start to feel like iron man in one way or another because of their super tech you know like every character has super tech uh it, it seems like um and it's gonna it'll be an interesting progression especially once we get to like the spider man in this universe and everything where it's like you know, uh, it's just fascinating. I mean, we definitely have a model of what we we do, and and it makes sense though. I mean, we're in space, and so to have space tech, you know, and cool like, you know, Cad Bane boot lifters, and you know, like sweet yeah, guns yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I mean, Peter Quill even dresses a little bit like Cad Bane, which is kind of cool. He just he does sure does, hat, you know. Um, yeah. And. So, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. We do start in a more serious place, and then we make this switch to because Peter Quill, like you said, as a character, he's a man boy. Like, he's not really a man. He's just a boy living out this fantasy because nobody's ever really raised him to show him what it means to be a man. And so he and, and the people we see that he was with, they're all degenerates and idiots anyway, you know? So it's like, it's no wonder that this kid turned out the way he did. Um, and of course this movie in many ways has the same type of feeling that you get from, and it's interesting, you know, James Gunn really picks up, I think, a Joss Whedonism, which is to create the found family. Like we continue in that trend, like the Avengers was that, right? We actually continue that trend here where we create another found family, but it's not the Avengers, it's the Guardians of the Galaxy. And so this movie is all about putting those, you know, characters that nobody else cares about together and and making a family of them. And, and, you know, Peter Quill is the big part of that and the one we kind of see this world through. And, you know, in all honesty, I think 
the the casting is what makes this work because oh, yeah. without Chris Pratt I don't think this character works because Chris Pratt does a thing to which you know it's semi Ryan Reynolds-ish with the humor but he's more of a likable dope instead of like the hard-edged cynical person right yes like he, yeah. you could tell there's there's more of a heart underneath it all and i think that's the thing that you this this is a kid who's covering up the fact that basically he watched his mom die and he never touched her hand when she died and he's still living with that pain now and he tries to cover it up with all of this stuff it's it's never enough right so yeah. and i think i think chris pratt does a very good job in this movie uh, and and he's the one that makes this movie work the most well i i will go ahead i you know i I will take that cue and i will run with it this way uh i'll open up a little bit here you know i my mom died under similar circumstances i was a couple decades older than peter quill um but similar sort of thing um and i think that it can't be under understated or undervalued or I'm sorry, it can't be overstated or overvalued. What a great job Gunn does cutting that opening together, the way that that child actor plays things, the way that everybody around plays things, and the way that uh, Chris Pratt plays things. He was a very identifiable uh, sort of character to me um, because there is a tremendous, tremendous uh, relatable emotion there um, I don't, I, I don't claim that like I can relate to the character better than anybody else sort of thing, but it was a very, very relatable. Like I cannot make it through certain scenes of this movie without getting a little, it's a little difficult. And a lot of that, I give so much credit to Gunn and to Pratt for the way that they portray somebody who is dealing with pain by refusing to grow up. And it's a really, I think, winds up being a very important sort of meta commentary on the audience itself because we're all people who I, I, I will, I'll cop to it at least. I'm a person who never stopped playing with toys because a part of me never wanted to let go of them. And, you know, part of that has to do with it's a coping mechanism. And I think that, that Pratt is an absolute I'd never seen him in anything before this. I didn't see I've never watched Parks and Rec or anything like that. This is my first encounter with Chris Pratt. He was an absolute revelation to me. I was blown away by how well he played those specific notes in the movie. And at the end when he, you know, sees his mom in place of Gamora reaching out for him, that is such a I mean, you think about it. You have like Infinity Stone nonsense going on around and the world's blowing up and he's holding blah, blah, blah. And he still manages to convey through all of those effects, all of the paint and everything, that sort of little pain where he finally gets to correct the wrong and put his hand out when he needs to. Well, and I I think the beauty of what you're talking about is the fact that Gunn creates the thematic element for all of these characters and that basically they're all island of misfit toys toys yeah they're 
they're people that nobody wants and 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 that nobody's treated well right like all of them have been mistreated all of them have had terrible things that have happened to them all of them have been misused or mistreated or and he uses that to his advantage to bring these characters together because in the end they do all understand where they're coming from and i think you really see that when you um see rocket kind of open up to peter when he yells at him telling him you know i didn't ask to get made you know i didn't ask for what happened to me uh, and it just did somebody did this to me and now i have to live with the consequences of that it's the same thing that happened to Peter. It's the same thing that happened to Gamora. You know, it's the same thing that happened to Drax. And and Groot just, who knows where he comes from or how he got created. We don't know because all he says is, I am Groot. And we don't speak Groot. So, <laughs> yeah. But I think that there's a real beauty in that, that the thematic elements when it comes to this family are, are really strong. And so um, I guess, you know, we talked about Pratt uh, you know, I would love to talk to you because I think obviously the cast is so important in this film. So it's really a good place to kind of spend a little bit more time. Was there anybody else that really stands out to you or was there anybody else that you feel like doesn't oh. quite do the job that you didn't want them? I mean, I, the, uh, you know, no, I, 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 the character of Ronan is difficult because I think, I think he's played fine. I just think like the villain it, it's an odd situation to be in where the villain is the least dynamic character. Oh yeah. Usually yeah. the villain steals the show. This is not the fault mm-hmm. of the actor. I think he does a terrific yeah, job. Yeah, Lee Pace I really is do. fine, yeah. He does a terrific job with the character. But the good guys are so much more dysfunctional and dynamic mm-hmm. this time around. That he gets overshadowed. Right. Which well, is not fair to him. Even gets overshadowed by the fact that Thanos is there too. You know, and so right. and I know they were trying to keep that from happening, but Ronan's really just a patsy in this whole thing. Like, you know, and he's very disposable as a villain. We have no idea what his motivation is. We don't, and nobody cares what his motivation is. And he just kind of comes off as an angry, maniacal maniac. And, and, and that's not really that interesting. So, again, it's not Lee Pace's fault. It's the writing here. Uh, I will say that the two people who really leaped off screen for me, uh, aside from Chris Pratt, I mean, I and this is taking nothing away from, I, I think that, that actually Vin Diesel does an incredible job of voice work for Groot. I think that Bradley Cooper is the whole reason Rocket comes alive. Uh, like, I, it, it's stunning to me how good a job, like, I, I would not sit there and say, oh, well, Bradley Cooper for voicing a raccoon. What a testament to him that Rocket Raccoon comes to life because of him. But the two that really jumped out both had blue skin, and that was uh, Karen Gillan as uh, Nebula. And this movie benefits so much from Michael Rooker as Yondu. He steals every scene that he's in, and he's fun, and he's lovable. Even though he's, I mean, he's a terrible person, but he's still lovable. And that's all Michael Rooker's doing. And um, even the fact that, like, when he opens the orb at the end and he sees that the troll is in there and he doesn't, there's not even a flash of pretend anger. He's proud that Quill fooled him. He's like, yeah, okay, you got me. Like, 
you can see that there's that you know he has a genuine love for quill in that moment so yeah i i would say rooker and, and gillen really mm. lit up the screen for me in this movie i like that i like that a lot um i'm going to comment real quickly i think you're absolutely right about Bradley Cooper, uh, you know, I was absolutely stunned rewatching this movie again by just how much he does to bring that character to life. And he's somebody who's cast later, you know, I mean, like, so he comes mm-hmm. in just to do the voice here. And I think absolute, I without him, I don't know if that role works. He just in, in, he pours everything he has into that role. And makes that character through the voice. And, you know, not every actor can be a great voice actor, but Bradley Cooper, uh, you know, really showed how much range he has as an actor to be able to do that and to make you really feel for something that's not even there on screen. You know, like it's Mm -hmm. a computer generated thing. And yet it feels like a real thing, which is amazing. And so... And then I agree with you. And I think Karen Gillan is so good because she doesn't have a ton of dialogue, but what she's doing with her body language and and just even the looks that she gives mm-hmm. as she is the one who truly does want Thanos's approval and yet nobody looks at, nobody wants. Again, she is the the misfit toy that nobody wants that just wants somebody's approval and she plays that really well. From under a ton of makeup. Exactly, yes. Like I, like a metric ton of makeup is over her. When I first... I, I wasn't familiar with her before this movie either. And when I saw her picture out of the makeup, it, I was... Wait, what? Like, it, it literally... I it, it took me a second to sit there and like stare at the picture and be like, okay, can I... Oh, yeah, okay, there's the cheekbone. Because she is so... I, in a sense... I'd love to know, I'd love to sit down with her and ask, like, was it liberating to be under all of that makeup? Did it give her permission to be more whatever she needed to be? Or was it a challenge? Because either way, she does a, a, a fantastic job. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, and the thing is, I, I even love, you know, I love John C. Riley as uh, Corman Day. But I love John C. Riley. Like, if you put John C. Riley in a movie, I'm instantly happier. Sure. Because I think the guy is just absolute magic. Um, I, and and the thing is that that actually all comes back, though. Everybody from uh, Jimon Hansu to Benicio del Toro to Glenn Close, the director is the one giving them direction mm-hmm. and and working with them to get those performances. And it is an incredible rarity to have a director able to get all of these performances in this movie, mm-hmm. which, to your point, has a raccoon and a and a giant tree that don't exist. Right. He gets the performances where I believe it's just like Mark Hamill in, in Empire Strikes Back. Mark Hamill is key to getting me to believe that Yoda exists. Yes. People overlook that. But Mark Hamill convinces us all that Yoda exists. And Chris Pratt and Zoe Saldana uh, and, 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 um, uh, and Dave Bautista convince me that Groot and Rocket exist. And yeah. that, 
that's the work of a director working with his actors. And that's a tremendous achievement. Yeah, no, I I mean, you're absolutely right. Now, I, I do have to say, for me personally, I am honestly not a huge fan of Saldana in this movie. Uh, and I never have been, and 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 I just, I mean, she's not bad, but she's not at the same level as everybody else here. And Fair. I, I just, um, I think that's the only when it comes to the cast in this film, she's the one who I just, I don't know, I just don't quite buy as Gamora, and it, it's not because she's terrible or anything. It's just there's something missing from the performance that everybody else is giving in their performance. And, and she's just not up to that level, which is, you know, disappointing, but it doesn't kill the movie. It just also means that it, like it. And I mean, at least she has chemistry with, you know, uh, Chris Pratt, you know, this isn't a Thor situation where that's the case, but it's right. just the level of performance to me doesn't come off the same as it does with everybody else. I think that's a fair comment. I think that's a fair comment, but I would I would actually sh- shift away from Saldana and say that script wise, she's of the of those dynamic heroes. She's in the least interesting lane, if you will. There is an argument now. I know what it's setting up, and I know why it ex- exists this way, and I know, et cetera, et cetera. It's almost an argument, maybe. If they're not trying to set up a certain thing happening later, that that character gets collapsed into one. I could easily see a version of this movie where Nebula and Gamora get combined into one character, which creates a more dynamic. And that character is conflicted Mm -hmm. between trying to get Thanos' approval and rebel against him, and Mm -hmm. she bounces back and forth. There is an argument to be made for having a, a a script that does yeah, that absolutely um, no i think you're right and and you're right it is something that's going to play in later that even gets mentioned here in this movie which right you know of her her um and how she you know becomes thanos's ward um and so no i i think you're absolutely right um i wanted to to ask you about this because it's fascinating to me that this is the movie that finally makes clear what the heck we're after, or at least Thanos is after, yes. by giving us a full explanation of the Infinity Stones, where they come from, um, not completely as to why he would want them, but starting to lay the foundation for what it is that this whole thing is about. Why somebody would value this, these stones? Yes, uh, and I I agree with you. I, I think that is, you know, I, again, it makes that it makes the stinger in Thor: The Dark World seem even more pointless, right? It, it which we flagged back when we watched it. It makes it seem so much more unnecessary. And having this explanation, the way they do the explanation, and who they have give the explanation works so well. Because it would make sense that somebody who's a collector would want it. And his menagerie that he has. You could easily see why somebody like him 
would want these things. And a character like this existing within a movie that is arguably a meta commentary on how comic book fans haven't grown up and are collectors themselves. It's kind of trippy. It's kind of yeah. great. You know, th- this movie enters into a realm. It dips its toe into a realm that rare transcendent works like Beavis and Butthead enter into where it's offering a reflective commentary on the very audience that it's targeting. So that if the audience slows down and thinks about it, there are characters and moments in here that give them the opportunity for self-reflection to say, yeah, why, why am I doing things this way? What, what am I trying to get at now? The thing is I'm sitting here praising it, but to double back to your, you know, your Gamora point, what we said about the script, there are things that could have been done better with the film. I think that there are definitely indulgent moments that should have been tightened. I think that there are emotional beats that could have been trimmed. I think that the movie as a whole, and I want want to get your reaction to this, watching it this time, this movie as a whole could be be about 10 minutes shorter i think that there are actual i don't think that there's any scenes that you could lift in toto out of it but i think that there are little trims here and there that you could make to just condense things Mm -hmm. it's interesting you say that because i i think a couple of things that i really have an issue with with the film are the fact that i don't care about the villain and i don't care about Xandar as a planet because I don't know mm. what Xandar is you know and neither, neither do like a majority of the people coming into this film you know I mean I, the amount of people that have actually probably read the comics are, are minuscule so you have to make us care in some way about the planet they're trying to save and and why they might even be important in the future like I, I get some thought process here that that the Zandarians and the Nova Corps are some kind of important because Glenn Close is playing the the main person there, which means they've got to mean something, right? But again, she doesn't do anything. You know, John C. Riley really doesn't do anything other than sort of try to make me feel a little bit, I guess, for these people. But it's like, I think that there's there's an issue in the movie that we do so well the setting up of the main cast and the this kind of like misfit family but we don't do anything really to kind of set up the rest of the movie you know which is the villain and the the planet that we end up trying to save i i i contest that i say that they they do set up xandar interestingly enough i do find xandar and this really struck me this time because one of my major criticisms of star trek for decades at this point is the monoculturism of its planets that, you know, every Klingon you meet is the same type of Klingon. Basically every, every, this, every, that every Vulcan is this every blah, blah, blah. That's why enterprise was so interesting is Vulcans actually had more dynamism right. to them. Yep. Xandar at the very least, what's fascinating about it is that there's no one type of Xandarian. Sure. It's a culture, not a race. 
Right. Which I think is a much more real world American way of looking at a planet, you know, at, at a culture sort of thing. That this is obviously a culture of a bunch of people from other places that came and decided to have a place. And so I think that's really legitimately interesting. But at the same time, I think that to your point, it's not – I don't know if it's the fact that we've had Earth in the crosshairs every mm-hmm. movie up to this point, and then all of a sudden Earth is not in the crosshairs. So in a sense, the previous movies in a way are a cheat because Earth is always the focal point of the villain and what True. the heroes are defending. So I don't live on Xandar – so I feel less worried about Xandar getting exploded. Sure. And so there could have been some opportunities that they could have taken to more more emphasize the galactic consequences of mm-hmm. this stone. Sure. As opposed to just a planetary concept. Like Ronan's goal is that planet. Right. Because his goal can't be larger because Thanos... That's his overarching thing. So do you think this benefits from Thanos being at the head of everything instead of Ronan? Basically get rid of the middleman here. Yeah, I I think it's it's interesting because – and obviously you can't have Thanos be the main villain because you can't have him be destroyed because you need him for later on. So that creates an issue there. Um but I, I think that what you kind of like just keyed in on, it's like you they set up the fact that Ronan and his people, the Kree, have a problem with the Xandarians. But I don't have any of that history, so I have no idea why or how that I should care uh, about this vendetta that he has against these people. Like, I don't even know what the vendetta is about, right? And so I think all of that kind of harms that part of the movie because I just don't know. And in, in, in all honesty, like, is it really important? They, like, haven't shown us that it, I mean, even now it's not important. It hasn't been even through phase four. We've never cared again about the Zendarians um, and or the Kree and how that plays a a, a role. And so... Um, maybe it will in the future. I don't know. Um, but it's just a fascinating thing here where I think it is the thing that kind of hurts the, the structure of the movie because there, there isn't enough for the non-initiated to care. Yes. They are unquestionably setting up Nova Corps for something greater and that thread is pulled a little bit more in guardians of the galaxy volume two. And I honestly think that there would have been more payoff for this. If we had had guardians three, when we were supposed Mm -hmm. to and captain Marvel would have benefited from that as well. Mm. Uh, Because she's supposed to tie into this. Um, and as is Adam Warlock. And so it's so funny 
the impact that some online trolling can have uh, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, it literally sure. threw a wrench into this whole thing, um, which is unfortunate, but it is what it is sort of thing. I couldn't judge this for that at the time. And so that always makes a retrospective thing like this difficult because it's hard to sort of separate that. Sure. But I, I do what, think that yeah. that regardless that this movie still does suffer because I don't think we can say this is a strong villain here mm. in this movie. And I do think that we can't really say that that part of the storyline is very strong in the sense of what the Guardians of the Galaxy are trying to save. Now, you know, it's not terrible that they're also trying to keep this out of a madman's hands. That that That's all legitimate, right? And who knows what Ronan would do with it beyond this. So, I mean, that's, again, that's not terrible. But there is a, a lack of, I think, true feeling for any of these things just because a lot of it is nebulous, um, as to who these characters are. Nebulous, that's the key, I think. I think that there is a version of this movie where you can drop Ronin in favor of having the antagonist become the antagonists and have it be Gamora and Nebula going out to get this thing and then Gamora betraying Nebula you condense the characters. Thanos is still there. And you have the antagonist thing be, I mean, it's obviously still there, Nebula versus Gamora, right. but it just sort of like ups the stakes for them. That's a good point. You could still find a way to get Nebula yep. to get away. You could still find a way to have Star-Lord grab the stone, like all of those sorts mm -hmm. of things. Yep. So in a sense, yeah, Ronan does be, and, and the thing is, I feel terrible saying it. Because I do think Lee Pace does a fine job as Ronan. Sure. Yeah. It's the script. It yep. is, it is, that is the core of everything. Yep. And it's not a bad script as a result. I'm not right. saying it's bad. I'm just saying this is something where you could have tightened mm -hmm. it and it probably could have saved me that 10 minutes where right. I started getting fidgety this time around. Yeah. I, I mean, I do want to ask you obviously something we talk a lot about and uh, we have a very uh, interesting difference in this film that the main soundtrack here and the one that people think of is all of the pop music is the mixtape. We don't really think of, you know, Tyler Bates score, but before we get to the mixtape, I do want to ask you about Tyler Bates score. Does anything here really stand out to you or is it really just there to fill space till we get to the next pop song? I thought that the guardians theme was the Avengers theme at first. I legitimately thought it was. And the fact that I couldn't really tell the difference between them, I kind of have to take points mm -hmm. off for that. Uh, maybe it's meant to show how they're going to become part of the Avengers, in a sense. Uh, so you could make an argument for it there. But I think that the opening musical cue, when he goes to Morag, I, I think it's good. Uh, I, I actually, I think it's a really well done cue, uh, but there's nothing about this score that really, 
you know, like uh, Brian Tyler did stuff in Iron Man three where I was like, yeah, this is this is what I'm looking for. Um, I don't really, I, I you know, I, I don't really get anything from this score mm-hmm. too much. What about you? I mean, it's unfortunate that I have to say that as well. I mean, I think that this unf- movie really, in its score, just takes up space. You know, when we're not using a pop song. Uh, and and I think that's disappointing. And, you know, I was really listening closely. I actually listened to the score outside of the movie. And, I mean, it, it's okay, it, but nothing about it is great. I mean, nothing about it is really revolutionary. I mean, it, it sounds fine, but it's not something that stands out. Right. And I think in many ways, that's kind of what they needed because, yeah, I mean, the the real star here when it comes to the music is all the music that James Gunn has picked to go on this mixtape, which, you know, I I mean, and this is what's interesting is that in, in many ways, you know, Peter Quill is the second character here now in the MCU, which just really defined by the music they listen to just as Tony Stark is defined by his love of ACDC. But in terms of the music selections for Awesome Mix Volume 1, I will say that James Gunn becomes the first director, you know, not just in a Marvel movie, but overall, where I think that the music selection has wound up being as well done as a Quentin Tarantino movie. I I consider Tarantino in the modern era as the gold standard for how to use pop music effectively in your movies. There are other people who do it very well as well. I'm not taking anything away from them, but Tarantino will always be my gold standard. This hits that level. These songs that Gunn picks are so perfect for the scenes that they're in as well as just being an incredible mix to listen to. Peter Quill's mom had impeccable taste in music. And I have to give the movie a lot of credit for the fact that one of the first things I did when I came out was, oh, do they have Awesome Mix Volume 1 to listen to on Spotify? Excellent, they have it to listen to on Spotify. (laughs) Um, And as a testament to the strength and popularity of the film, not too long, because this came out in, what, 2014, right? Um, not too long after this movie came out, I found myself in Disney World of all places, and uh, I was wearing my Guardians of the Galaxy T-shirt. And as I was walking through a section at at some place, it was in Hollywood Studios. Um, one of the cast members saw my shirt and pointed at me and said, "Yeah," and started dancing the way Peter Quill did in the beginning of the movie and 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 I started dancing too and we were just laughing and having a great time that is a special thing that this movie has that other marvel movies don't right that it became a source of joy and happiness not debate not did it adapt this not how far did it move the plot this is just a joyous experience that a lot of mm-hmm. people could plug into and the music has a lot to do with that no, I, I mean, I agree. I think the soundtrack is, is phenomenal. 
you know, Gunn has a real gift for choosing music. And, you know, um, I think the only other person that I can think of that did this this well was um, Zach Braff is really good at this and did it really well in Garden State um, and kind of created That's a good movie a, for that, you know, yeah. You know, created a soundtrack to which really um, encapsulated that entire film, you know, like if uh, all of that music is so synonymous with that movie. And so I think that was good. And the only other place that I really think of um, to me where the music has meant that much and, and really had an impact was, and this will sound strange, but in the first couple of seasons of uh, Grey's Anatomy, they were phenomenal at picking music for that show. And literally that music catapulted artists um, because of people loving what they heard, you know, and it becoming so, I mean, like the fray were synonymous with that show, you know, and in the same way that many of these songs have become synonymous with what we saw in this movie. So I I think Gunn does a great job there. And, um, and it's the place where one of the soundtracks for this movie works perfectly, you know, and the other is just serviceable. And that's, that's too bad. Yeah, it is too bad, although I will say that in a technical sense, I think that Guardians winds up having a bigger influence on where things go Mm -hmm. than the next Avengers movie does, and I think that stuns everybody. I I think, especially looking in retrospect, we were expecting Avengers 2 to be it, and I really think Guardians then followed up actually by Ant-Man. I think that winds up changing the course of the stream a little bit because the audiences react differently to this movie and then to Ant-Man than they do to, and if there's anything a, you know, a company like Disney does, it's let's give the audience what they want. Mm -hmm. Does it wind up working to the better or does it wind up working as a detriment? We'll find out. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right because you know, when you look at it, you it's going to be a long time before um, any other movie, but a Captain America movie is serious again. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 in all honesty, for me, um, that was one of the things. I mean, even originally coming out of this film, I, I was not as high on it as other people is because it couldn't take anything seriously. Oh, but see the thing. Okay, and 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 hold on, hold on. Let me let me finish though. But it it couldn't take anything seriously. But as I've watched it more times, I think it earns the that that ability. Like it it it's not as much of a detriment as it used to be for me. But there are places where I did feel like um, I. I would have liked slightly more seriousness. Um, I, I, I mean, I remember coming out of the movie for the first time and being really frustrated with the end, where we just like had this dance off, and it was just like, oh, we're just, ugh. it just didn't work for me. Okay, but I, I, again, I, 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 as we move forward, a, it's it's gotten better. That's definitely a personal choice thing or a personal preference thing because I, I love. That is actually one of my favorite moments in the movie because it's so absurd 
because what else could he possibly do to sure. do anything? It's and so in a sense, you can wind up understanding why Ronan stops because it's somebody acting so stupidly. It's like, wait, yeah. what? What? Well, what, and, and what's again, happening here? Yeah, and again, I I think you know it it was my first reaction to the movie, and it's changed over time. Um, that my reaction is definitely different now because I, I think I, I definitely understand um, the movie better, what it's going for more, and it makes more sense. It was just a, you know, it was just my first reaction to the movie. And, um, but I think in saying that, I think you're absolutely right that before the most part, what we really do get with the Marvel franchise is that this becomes more of the new the way like we're going to follow yeah. this model of being more jokey than not and then there are going to be a, some of exceptions that we find as we move forward um but they're going to be fewer and far between um until i guess we you know we really get to the super serious where we're talking about the end of well end game you know and infinity war where everything's coming to a head so yeah, I, I don't know, man. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, we uh, talked through this movie, and I am kind of interested as to you know where you're going to come down ratings wise with this one because I mean, you know, we've had good things to say, we've had some criticism, but you know, where does this fall for you? I I will tell you right now that my final rating does not reflect how much I love this movie on the whole. And I know that sounds odd, but because I love to use terrible analogies and metaphors uh, and, and similes and every other type of comparison in a bad way, and I always love to use hamburgers, this yeah, is, do. I do, I do, I love hamburgers, what can I say? Uh, I mean, this, why wouldn't you? Yeah, right? <laughs> this is like one of those hamburgers, they don't always get... But every time you get it, you're happy, even though while you're eating it, you're like, I know that I could make a better choice. You know, like it's 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 not middle of the road. It's upper tier. But if you drove just an extra 15 minutes, you could probably get a better hamburger. It's but like, like when you went eh, to you Red know, Robin to instead of the more local place that's even better. Yeah, that's it. That. Red Robin's got good burgers, though. That's what it I'm saying. But I really mean, good and they are good, but it's, but it's like no, you yeah, know no. that, that that local place has the burger that's so good you want to die for it. I, I'm going to give you a lot of credit for this <laughs> because Red Robin does have great burgers, but it's not the first place you ever think of exactly. as a great burger. Exactly. That is, that's a good pull. Thank really you. Really good pull on that one. I'm uh, going to so, pull yeah, that audio and just play it back to you. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, that's my early Christmas gift to you. I said something nice for once. Um, so uh, this is a four, but I mean a solid four. This is a reliable four, and I think that it gets away with some stuff that I might ping other movies for because the music selection is so good, because Chris Pratt is so good, because Rocket is so funny, because, because, because all of these things. Even though I think it could be about 10 minutes shorter, even though at the script level, I think you could do away with Ronan and just have it be the Nebula and Gamora show, even though, even though, even though all of that stuff solid for 
in terms of my rankings right wait now. A wait a minute. You oh, got to wait. Sorry. Oh, it's we're going to we're going to hold yeah, off on the yeah, rankings. Yeah, so, I thought we did ratings and then rankings, no. okay? Yeah, I'm we, sorry. We'll, All right. There we'll you go. We'll do the rankings in a minute, but I'm going to give my rating first. Um Okay. So for me, uh this movie is stayed pretty consistent. Um and I am at a three and a half out of five. And for me it, it's it's not a uh a reflection on how much I enjoy watching this movie either. Um I do think that the things that we we did mention and uh, that continue to kind of be some issues that I have with this movie, like the villain and and those kind of things, um bring it down. But I at the same time, I have so much fun just watching this cast together that I have come to really enjoy this movie even more than I did before. But there's still some there's still some issues with it, I think. Um, and you know, but a three and a half is is a pretty respectable rating for a film, and you know it it still keeps it honestly in the upper tier here for my Marvel films, and mm-hmm. so. Uh, John, if you were going to rank the Marvel films now with Guardians of the Galaxy, where do you end up? Okay, I'm trying to remember. This is my promise. You know what you need to do is you just need to create yourself a list on Letterboxd, and then I sure do. You wouldn't have this problem. (laughs) You're absolutely right. I, I I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, "Oh my god!" Because we all know I can just easily be like, oh, "Yeah, Iron Man 2. That's still, that's still at the bottom. It's still at the bottom of the pack, kids. Going to be for a while." Um, okay. If I were to take a crack at ranking things and and keep me honest here, because I want to make sure that I don't okay. miss anything. Sure. Guardians is going to wind up just like Captain America: The First Avenger. It's going to wind up beating out a movie that technically I might have ranked higher. Right. In terms of like star rating okay. and stuff or, or you know, so it's still Winter Soldier. Captain America, the Winter Soldier is still at the top of the pack. Okay. It's safe up there. Iron Man 3 is number three. Right. Or I'm sorry, is number two. Yep. Guardians of the Galaxy winds up number three. Okay. Because this is a movie that it's a four star, but I can pop this in. I can have it on in the background. I can watch a scene or two. I can laugh at it. I love the music. All that stuff. Iron Man, Captain America, the first Avenger, the Incredible Hulk, Avengers, uh, Thor, Thor the Dark World, and then uh, um, barely in the rankings, continually crushed by the weight of every movie that's better than it, Iron Man 2. I love it. I love it. Um, Yeah, this is interesting because we're starting to create some differences here. So... Uh, for me, it is Captain America, the Winter Soldier, of course, uh, and then Iron Man, Iron Man 3, uh, and then it is the first Avenger, uh, Captain America, the first Avenger, uh, and then uh, it's the Incredible Hulk, uh, and then it's Guardians of the Galaxy, and then it's Avengers, uh, and then it is Thor the Dark World, then Thor, and I forgot Iron Man 2, didn't I? Hmm. You Hold did. On. I did. Hold on. So you just uh, made yep. a Freudian slip proving that you agree so, that Iron so Man that 2 means, belongs to the bottom of the list. That means that it's, it, it, what it means is that it's, it's Thor the Dark World, Iron Man 2, and then Thor at the end. So. Nope. 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 Yep. You made a slip. You made an unconscious <laughs> slip showing that you agree that Iron Man 2 is the worst one so far. Oh, man. So, yes. Um, 
I love it though. We we are starting to create some differentiation between uh, the top now, which is is kind of fun. So and, and and it's so tough because that top really does wind up and and Guardians and First Avenger are you know First Avenger was the first one to sort of plant this flag, but Guardians becomes the first one to really plant the flag of something I could I can ding that I can acknowledge those things on, but emotionally. I enjoy so much more, and I readily acknowledge mm-hmm. that part of that has to do with the mom sure. plotline. Which is great, though. I mean, I think I think that's the thing that makes these kind of discussions so much fun, right, is, is, is being able to discuss where it is that the film really connects with you. And, and, and even though intellectually it might not be as good as a, a, another film— there's something about it that just speaks to you, right? And I think that's so cool because, you know, art truly can touch you in a way that makes you be really, it forgives a lot of sins, right? You know, love covers a multitude of sins. And and if you love a film because of something that speaks to you emotionally, it, it it can do that, and I think that's fantastic. So, um, and and that's the fun I think of of doing this. It's the fun of podcasting and be able to have these type of discussions. And so, I absolutely love it, and I'm I'm really glad, you know, that we have been on this journey together. And I'm really interested because you know we're gonna get to the last two movies here. And phase two, and then phase three is like as long as all get out. So, um, we'll, uh, oh boy, is it yeah, ever. we'll actually be, so we'll, uh, bef- before, uh, we go, I'll let everybody know, um, we're going to be doing the, the last two phase two movies. Then we're going to take a break from assembling Avengers. We're going to go back to Snyder cuts, uh, and talk about a film there. And then we'll come back in the new year for uh starting phase three because well it's gonna take us all year it feels like um so but john Did they released my god yeah phase three was they didn't they release like five movies in one year in phase three so from 2016 to 2019 so from may 2016 to july 2019 it is one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven films but wasn't it five movies in the year leading up to Infinity War? Uh, so because- from from so Black Panther takes place in February of 2018, uh, and then to July 2019, Spider Man Far From Home. Like that's that's six films. Wait, Basically, Far From Home. I, you know I haven't seen Far From Home. So hey everybody, uh, yeah, you get Far to tune in and hear Far From Home is what happens after Endgame. So Right. Yeah. So wait. That's the last end- movie of phase three. I can't keep these. No, but I'm talking about before oh, you know what? It doesn't matter. Because we're gonna get there either way. That's we, fine. We are. That's fine. We are. So yeah. uh but no, I mean it 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 becomes a massive schedule. I mean, they're releasing uh mo- mainly three films a year from now on. It's it's crazy. So I mean, it really becomes a machine. So it's going to be fascinating to get there. And uh, I think we'll obviously have a ton of fun to do it. But, you know, uh, John, if people want to catch up with you, where can they find you? Well, just look for Kessel Junkie on your social network of choice. And, uh, you know, look for me on Letterboxd because I do love to put ratings and pithy reviews up there. 
Uh, and you can find me over on The Nerd Party, co-hosting two shows. The first show that I'll mention is House Lights, where we look at the works of directors, different combinations, beginning to finish, by decade, by theme, by what have you. Uh, and then I also co-host a delightful Star Wars show called Aggressive Negotiations with you, Matt. You, right there, Matthew Rushing. We assemble the Avengers of uh, Star Wars podcasting, <laughs> the two of us, <laughs> to talk about things on Aggressive Negotiations. It is it is great. It is great. As Plo Koon would say, we are justice uh, on that show, and it's fantastic. <laughs> I like um, that. But uh, you can find me all over the place. Uh, just look for Matt Rushing Zero Two on social media. So whether you know it's uh, Vero, Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, all those places, you can find me. You can also find me here on the network, uh, of course, in the same feed as you're finding this show, Six or Two Club, talking about all the fandoms we love, Snyder cuts as well, uh, and then I'm doing Literary Treks, The Orb, and Warp Five. Literary Treks about the books and the comics of Star Trek. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and then Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise. And then, aside from doing aggressive negotiations on the Nerd Party Network, I have a finished show called Owl Post I did with Drea Kaufman, where we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But as always, thank you so much for joining us. Avengers! <laughs> 